Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 742 with Wendy Wood. Wendy is one of the leading researchers on habits, how to make them, how to break them, what's behind them. So you'll learn one, the trick to building habits, two, why context is so crucial for habits, and three, the one question to control your bad habits. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, Visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP742 and check out some of our other goodies at awesomeatyourjob.com, such as the full text transcripts, the gold nugget email summaries, and so much other good stuff. Now here's Wendy's story. Wendy Wood is a behavioral scientist who is provost professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California. She is the author of the book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. And for the past 30 years, she has been researching the nature of habits and why they are so difficult to change. Big thanks to Wendy for sharing her wisdom with us. A big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Wendy, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Great to be here. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you about habits, one of my favorite topics here. Could you start us off by telling us about a habit that has been transformational for you personally? So, you know, it's hard to isolate any one habit that we have that makes a huge difference in our lives because so much of what we do is influenced by our habits depends on our habits, much more so than we realize. I've done some research on how much of our daily lives is habitual in the sense that we're repeating things without thinking a lot about them, just sort of responding automatically. And almost 43% of what we do every day we're doing out of habit. So habits contribute to an awful lot more than most of us imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, that, well, that is intriguing. And I was just about to ask you for any particularly surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discoveries you've made along the way with your research. Sounds like you already got one, but anything else leap into mind? I think that for your audience, the biggest question is how do I change bad habits, unwanted habits? And most of us do it by exerting willpower, making a decision. But habits don't work that way. Habits are really part of the non-conscious processes in our brain. 
so that habits form as we repeat behaviors, and they change as we repeat behaviors too. So changing habits is not at all what we think it is. It's not what we usually try to do. Okay. So that's sort of like a definitional point. Like if we're calling it a habit, it's not even an effortful initiative of our proactive will that we're going for, but rather just kind of like a something operating in an autopilot a part of ourselves, definitionally speaking. Exactly. Okay. So we think of our brain as processing information, as a single unit that tells us when we like things, that records memories. But in fact, our brains are made up of multiple separate systems that only sort of work together. And the habit system is something that is part of our non-conscious. So you have habits. I have habits. Our dogs have habits. We all learn through experience. It's a very basic way of learning. And it really guides a huge amount of what we do, particularly at work. One of the things we found early on is that people who have jobs actually have slightly more habits than people who don't. And that's because our jobs structure our day so that we're repeating the same things. You go to the same place, or at least you used to before the pandemic. If you're an office worker, many of us are still not quite back in the office We go to work at the same time each day. We wear similar types of clothes. We stop for lunch around the same time. So work really structures our life in ways that make it very easy for us to form habits. Mm -hmm. Well, so I've been treated research on the number of habits. Tell us, how many habits do we have on on average or the rough range for people? I don't think there's an exact number. As I said, 43% of the time you are acting on habit. So almost half the time you're doing things automatically without thinking and without necessarily making decisions. And you can see why that would be useful because you don't have to think carefully about how you're going to get to work today or think about where you're going to go for lunch. Usually we just do what we've done before that sort of worked for us in some way. It might not be the best thing, but it's the easy thing. And we just repeat it and do it again. Mm-hmm. Well, I could see how, you know, sure, conserving mental thought energy is something that, that we accomplish there. Could you paint a picture for us in terms of for professionals well, and, and maybe all of mankind, like what, what's really at stake or possible here? Do you have maybe any startling statistics or inspiring stories showing us what's, what really is possible if we master or fail to master habit building as a skill? Well, you're building habits all the time. The skill to master is building habits that work for you, that are rewarding, that are consistent with your goals. And so that's the skill that everyone needs to focus on. And you do that by repeating behaviors that are 
productive, that save you money, that are healthy. So habit memories build as you do the same thing over and over again. You don't build habits by decisions. You build habits through repetition, repeating a behavior in the same context so that the next time you're in that context, that's the behavior that springs to mind. And it takes many repetitions for habit memories to form. And that's why they're so challenging is they stick around. So it takes a long time to form a new habit, and it takes a long time for habit memories to decay. Mm-hmm. You said many repetitions, and I've I've read some numbers cited that are different in a number of places. So, Wendy, could you could you weigh in on how many reps or how long does it take to form a habit? Yeah, you'll read lots of things about habits out there because people are fascinated by them. They should be. There's something that is part of our unconscious that we don't have access to. We don't have awareness of how our habits work. So it's really fascinating to to speculate. And there's lots of speculation out there in the literature. But what science tells us is that it takes probably about three months of repetition almost every day for a habit to become really strong so that you do it without thinking. Mm-hmm. So that it becomes an automated part of your everyday life. And I'm curious, you said about three months, and part of me thinks that that's a tricky question. Like, how long does it take to form a habit? Sort of like, well, how long does it take to master chess? How long does it take to fall in love? I I mean, you got, got (laughs) there's, it's going to vary wildly, you know, based on on some contexts and 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 individuals and and what you're achieving. And I'm thinking about we interviewed B.J. Fogg, uh, who who wrote about tiny habits, and his take was, well, hey, if <laughs> it's super easy and doesn't require a lot of effortful motivation, you might find that you're installing habits quite quickly. Is, is that fair to say that the the time it takes can can really vary based upon just how you know big or small or hard or easy or motivated or unmotivated you you feel about something? Well, probably not with motivation because habit memories don't depend on how motivated you are. Instead, they depend simply on repetition. Repetition and whether you do things in the same way each time. So you're absolutely right. It takes a long time to master some things. Playing a Chopin Piano concerto, take me a long, long time to learn how to do that. Playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star on the piano, that I can do. So how long something takes really depends on how difficult the behavior is, how complex it is. Your intuition is absolutely right. So I guess when it comes to habit difficulties, I guess it's true, like if it's wipe up the counter after... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, making coffee in the morning is is a lot easier than uh, head to the gym and do an elaborate, you know, workout routine each morning. You got it. Yep. And that's true in our jobs too, right? There are some things we do that are relatively easy and straightforward, and we can form habits for them pretty quickly, quickly being several months. But other things are just much more complicated and never, ever become completely habitual. 
Oh, I see. So let me give you an example. And this is all part of the idea, the research evidence that people have multiple components in their brain, multiple systems that work somewhat separately. So very productive writers, if you're a productive writer and you're pushing out those pages every day, you probably have a habit to write at a certain place, certain time of day. Maybe you write for a certain number of hours or get a certain number of words on the page. Most really productive writers have these habits that get them to writing. But the actual writing isn't done out of habit. Habit is too basic a mechanism. That's your creativity. So habits and conscious thought, conscious decision-making, creativity, they both together allow us to do very complex tasks, but both are required. Because if you're a great writer, but you don't have good habits, then you're struggling to get yourself to write. You're struggling against yourself. Do I want to do it today? Will I be successful? How do I do it? You're wasting all that energy before you even start writing. So that's why it's so important to get your habits in sync with your goals, get them aligned with your goals, your conscious desires. And if you do that, then your habits will help you achieve them. Yeah, I like that. And I'm thinking, well, the quote that comes to mind, I think it's been attributed to many different writers is, you know, I write when I'm inspired and I make sure to be inspired at 9 a.m., you know, each morning, Uh, (laughs) uh, which I kind of summarizes that, okay, there's a creative thing going on as well as like discipline, you know, uh, habituated thing going on. I'm seated, hands on keys at that time and place. Yep. And things are quiet and nobody's bothering me. So I have a chance to actually be creative, which is no guarantee. You're not going to be creative every day. If you've written a lot, you know, some days are just crap. You just don't produce things that you want to keep. But if you have a habit to write, the next day you'll be back there. And that day things might work better. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Well, so let's, let's maybe apply some of this goodness that you lay out in your book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, in terms of thinking about some professionals and, and habits they'd like to make or break. Well, how do we start with break? Let's say folks like, I look at my phone too much. I'm always scrolling TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, email when I should, I should, you know, be unplugged in uh, from work and uh, re- rejuvenating. Uh, but I, I just find myself, whoa, how'd, how'd this happen? Here I am on, on my Facebook, uh, on the phone. If folks have that habit, they'd like to stop. What do we do? It's very understandable if people have that habit because our phones and social media sites in particular are designed to be very habit-forming. They are set up in ways that make it really easy for us to form habits to use them, in part just because we can take them everywhere, right? You can take your phone on the bus, you can take your phone to the office, you can take it into important meetings. People take it into the restroom. You can take your phone everywhere. It's always accessible. So it's always available to be used. And it's very rewarding, right? 
You get on your phone and you learn stuff. So it has the components of habit formation built into it. And the challenge is we need to control those forces in our lives, as you said. So one way to do this is to make it a little bit harder for us to use the phone. And that's not the way most people think about changing their habits, right? Most people think, okay, if I have a problem with using my phone too much, I need to make a decision exert some willpower, figure out how to control this thing. Become a hero. (laughs) Exactly. Become a hero. But habits, your habit memory will long outlast your desire to control this behavior. Habit memories stick. They don't go away very easily. In fact, some researchers think that once you have a habit, it never goes away. So the best thing you can do is to put some brakes on it. And we call that adding friction to the behavior. One great way of adding friction, if you're in a meeting, is to take your phone and just put it face down. Because that reduces the cues that you will see to pick it up and look at it again. You're not going to see the alerts in the same way. Another way is to... To form a habit of putting it in your briefcase, your backpack, your purse, and zipping it so that you actually have to unzip it in order to use it. Now, all of this just sounds a little too simple, which is, I think, why people don't do it. But there's great research evidence showing that it does work. In fact, probably the best evidence comes from anti-smoking campaigns. Okay, do tell. So the last century, middle of the last century, about 50% of Americans smoked. And then we all learned that smoking causes cancer. So we all got concerned about it. But our behavior didn't change a whole lot. It didn't change really until the government started putting friction on smoking. So they banned smoking in public places. So you can't smoke in restaurants and bars anymore, can't smoke in the office, which makes it just a little bit more difficult to keep being a smoker. They added taxes onto the cigarette purchases so that it's a little bit more difficult to afford to be a smoker. And then they started removing cues so that it used to be you could just go into the store and pull a packet of cigarettes off of the shelf. But you can't do that anymore. You have to ask somebody. Mm-hmm. For and show the brand your face and you... shame. Exactly. For I the brand need that nicotine smoke. from you. <laughs> and you have to remember exactly what kind, right? And there are five different variants on every brand that's out there. So you have to describe it to somebody. They make it work. You have to work for it. And anything you have to work for, people are less likely to do. So that now with after removing cues and adding friction to smoking, only 15% of Americans actually smoke, which is an amazing success story, but it was done through friction. And friction on a behavior that's even more addictive, more habit-forming 
than your phone because there is an addictive component to smoking, obviously, right? It's that nicotine, that nicotine jolt that you get when you smoke. But friction helps control it. So thinking about your experience in terms of friction helps give you control over habits that you may not want to continue. Yeah, that, that's intriguing. And I, I love I love a good story with numbers. So thank you for that. And, and now I'm thinking in contrast to e-cigarettes like Juul really proliferating, perhaps by just the opposite. Like there is so little friction in terms of well, I mean, high school students like sneakily <laughs> are using them in their schools because there's there's no, no smell. There's no need to light something up. Uh, it can be done, you know, hide it in a bathroom or, or a locker, the, the exhale or, or whatever. You know, friends, family, colleagues can't smell and judge you in, in, in terms of like, oh, you're a smoker, huh? You know, so you, you, don't, you don't have that stigma there. You have a couple puffs without a whole cigarette. Yeah. For high school students, it has all the benefits and few of the downsides until their parents figure out what <laughs> yeah, so Then you'll get some friction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> parents can be friction in that case. So. Severe penalties. Okay. Well, so so that's that's really handy. So, so friction. Now, you mentioned in the book, context, repetition, reward. Uh, where Do we put friction in the, in the context? Bucket, because we make the context harder to do. Exactly. You set up contexts that make repetition a little bit harder, require a bit more thought on your part. And it's amazing how influenced we all are by the friction in our lives. There's great evidence that people who are closer to gymnasiums actually work out more often. And that's not how we think about working out, right? We think we're making a decision, we're being admirable people, we're showing willpower, we're concerned about our health. And so that's why we go work out. But instead, another important determinant is how easy is it to get there? And if you can get to the gym easily, you're just much more likely to work out and have an exercise habit. Yeah. So that's so powerful. It's like, how can I make this easier or how can I make it harder? Can you just lay upon us example after example of, of cool stories you've heard of folks doing some clever things to, to do that? So, hey, well, one, you could move closer to a gym. Uh, which that, that might seem dramatic, but hey, if that's a priority for you, I've, I've known people who have moved close to uh, to a gym, to uh, a beach, to a forest, to a church, kind of whatever is kind of important and useful for them. They factor that into the planning because that context, that ease versus difficulty really does shape their behavior. Yeah. It's surprising how impactful it is in a variety of different domains. So people who are sitting. So there's one study where researchers gave people in one condition a bowl of buttered popcorn mm -hmm. and a bowl of sliced apples. And in one condition, the popcorn was right close to them and the sliced apples were way at the end of the counter. They could see them and they could reach for them, but it was a bit of effort. <laughs> in another condition, the apples were right in front of them. 
and the popcorn was at the end of the counter. Again, they could see it, they could smell it, and they could get there. And everybody was told, eat what you want. So when the apples were close to them, they ate a third less calories than when the popcorn was close to them. They weren't any less hungry. And they it wasn't like people changed their food preferences. Instead, it was just people eat what's closer and are less likely to eat what's further away. We're very simple in some ways. We're very simple creatures. And this effect of friction on our behavior is is very powerful. That's cool. That's cool. Well, more please. Can you think of some other fun stories of professionals who, who've done things to make things easier or harder and seen cool results from it? Well, one of the ways that you can get exercise very easily in your life is to bike to work. And when communities put in bike lanes, people are just much more likely to bike, protected bike lanes. So, so often you see these stripes painted down the middle of the road. And as a cyclist, I wouldn't use them because they're scary. Cars don't give you much. They don't stay away from you in the same way as in protected bike lanes where there's some fence or some protection between you and the cars. When cities put in protected bike lanes, people are just much more likely to cycle to work than when they're, they don't have protected bike lanes. And again, we think that these things are our personal decisions, that we're either good people or bad people for doing these different things. But instead, we're very influenced by the forces in our environment. One of my favorite studies was done by a group of researchers in the 1980s. And they were in a four-story office building. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to convince people to take the stairs instead of the elevator while they were at work. So they started doing just what we all do, which is they thought, well, I should convince people that this is the right thing to do. So they put up signs all over the elevator. Take the stairs, not the elevator. It's good for the environment. It's good for your health. Uses more calories. Doesn't waste energy. No effect. So what they did is they decided to add a small amount of friction to using the elevator. And they slowed the closing of the elevator door by 16 seconds. Wow, the, the whole process of closing the door takes 16 seconds? More than it typically did, yep. Wow. They added 16 seconds to it. That's so enough think, for me to be like, forget this, I'm out of here. <laughs> exactly, mm. and that's, that's what happened, is that elevator use was cut by a third. Oh, really? I thought it'd be way bigger. It's like, that sounds like an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> You're obviously an impatient person. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> guilty. <laughs> but the really cool thing about the study was a month later, they put the elevator doors back to their original speed and people kept taking the stairs Yeah, because they'd formed a habit to do that. And they weren't going to mess with the elevator. They just kept taking the stairs. They'd learned how to do it. They figured out, yes, it is good for me. It gives me a little bit of a break in the middle of the day. 
So they just continued to do it. And again, I'm not advocating people change the speed of the elevator door closing in their office, but simple friction tricks like that can be really powerful, much more so than convincing ourselves that something is right, something is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's an example of a really easy habit that sort of fits in naturally that locked in within a month. So cool beans. Well, so so in, in Good Habits, Bad Habits, with the three bases of context, repetition, reward, feels like we've hit context pretty thoroughly. Can we hear some best practices in the zone of repetition and reward that are within our actionable control? Yeah. So psychologists used to think that intrinsic motivation was most important, that there was something unique about intrinsic motivation, feeling good because of an activity while you're doing the activity itself, finding things that make you feel good when you do them, that there was something unique, important, special about that. And we've since learned that it doesn't quite work that way. It's just doing activities and having some positive experience. The positive experience doesn't even have to come from the activity itself. So researchers gone into kids' classrooms, math classes, the kids kind of like, kind of don't like, and played music, gave the kids food while they were doing math problems, gave them colored pens to use for the math problems, and the kids worked on the problems longer just because they felt it was more fun. It was more engaging, more rewarding to do it. Those are not rewards that are part of math necessarily, but if you add them in, they increase our enjoyment of the activity and make it more likely that we will repeat it again in the future so that we'll form it into a habit. Those kids were more likely then to do math in the future and then might form a habit actually do their math homework. Well, that, that's lovely. So if, if we could make something more enjoyable from, you know, the ambiance, the lighting, the music, the design, the tools, then away we go. It's, I, it's true. I, I like working more with my pilot precise RT pin than, you know, <laughs> some you junk go. they gave me at the bank. <laughs> there you go. And, and people use this all the time with exercise. You know, people do it intuitively with exercise. You might hate to work out at the gym, but if you can listen to interesting podcasts like this one, if you can find good music, a good book to read while you're working out, it makes it much more interesting and much more fun. And you're more likely to do it again in the future, forming a habit. So you can add in rewards that don't have anything to do with an activity. And it functions just like an intrinsic reward, something that comes from the activity itself. Oh, that's cool. So with context, we we can proactively think about how to shape things to make it easier or harder to do in the context. For reward, we can actively shape it so we can make something more pleasant or less pleasant. How do you make something less pleasant? Maybe if, if I wanted to make looking at my phone less enjoyable, 
<laughs> is there something I can do there? Yeah, there sure is. You can put it to grayscale. Okay, sure. Take the colors out. And that does a, a couple of things. It removes cues because it makes it harder to distinguish the different icons and exactly what they are. And then it also removes the rewards. It makes it less interesting for us to get on social media and see different videos and pictures. And so it removes cues, removes rewards, something you can do to control phone use. Absolutely. Oh, very cool. And how about repetition? I mean, I guess, you know, just do more, just do less. I don't know. Anything clever we can we can do to work this lever? Well, repetition is really a function of reward and things that are easy. So repetition you're more likely to repeat a behavior if you enjoy what you're doing and if it's easy to do. So it's a consequence of rewards and context friction. And I'm curious, if I wanted to get a, a head start, really turbocharge getting the habit going, would it be worth my while to just try repeating something dozens of times like, okay, I wake up, I put on my running shoes, roll out of bed, put on running shoes, roll out of bed, put on running shoes. Like, is, is that a useful thing to do? Sure. If you go running then. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I guess I was thinking about, about the actual, like for the next hour, I'm going to exit my bed and put on running shoes 50 times. Is that useful? I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's worth it. Okay. I think it is worth it to figure out where to put your running shoes so that you're most likely to put them on when you have time to go running and actually walk outside with them and start running. So finding time in your day, finding a way to structure in to make it easy for you to go running will be more successful. All righty. Well, tell me, Wendy, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I think habits in the workplace are often misunderstood because we tend to think of work as involving both innovation and habitual repetition. And we don't realize how much our habits enable that innovation. So they allow us to get to the point where we can be creative and innovative and respond to the challenges that we all have at work. If you have good habits, then you're not struggling with the preparatory stuff. Instead, you're doing that automatically. And that sets you up to do what is going to be successful today in meeting the um, new innovative challenges at work. All right. Thank you. And now can you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think my favorite quote was an inaccurate one hmm. by William James when he claimed that 99.9% of everyday activities are done out of habit. William James is brother of Henry James, if you are an English major, and he is often considered to be the father of modern psychology. So the fact that he was such a habit enthusiast is great. 
He was didn't have much data. He didn't have anything to back up his speculation, but he was a real enthusiast. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I think that probably my favorite study is the one that I already mentioned on elevator use. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you one that we did that I think illustrates how hard it is to change our habits. And it was done at a local movie cinema. We got the people who ran the cinema to allow us to show some shorts at the beginning before people watch the actual movie they came to see and supposedly to thank them for rating all of these movie shorts we gave them boxes of popcorn to eat Mm -hmm. these were free everyone took them and unbeknownst to them half of the popcorn was stale and it was really stale it had Uh been in our lab for about a week in a plastic bag So it was not great popcorn. Half got fresh popcorn. So you see the setup. At the end of the presentation, we collected the boxes and we weighed them to see how much people actually ate. And what we found is that people who didn't have habits to eat popcorn at the movie cinema, and there are such people out there, they ate a lot of the fresh popcorn, they did not eat the stale popcorn because they could tell us it was awful. And it was. But people with habits to eat popcorn in the movie cinema, they were sitting there, they were holding the popcorn, and they ate the same amount, whether it was fresh or stale. (laughs) And it just shows that our habits are cued automatically, even when we don't want them to be, right? These people are telling us, I hate this popcorn. It's disgusting. I actually don't know that I've ever gotten such low ratings of anything in my lab before. So people really did hate it, but they kept eating it (laughs) because they were cued by the context that they were in. It's easy. It's what they'd done before. It was their habit, and they just persisted. They repeated that behavior. Oh, there's so much there. And and I I believe I first heard of this experiment from uh, Katie Milkman's book. I think she cited you because I hear her voice in my mind's ear (laughs) in the audible version, fresh popcorn. Anyway, uh, and we had her on the show and she was great. And so one, that's really cool. Hey, that's you. (laughs) And and two, it's like, whoa, if you zoom out and think about that as a life metaphor, it's like, how much stale popcorn do we have going on in our lives that we're just kind of mindlessly dealing with because it's easy and it's repeated and that's the context we're in? You got it. And uh, got to do some soul searching there. <laughs> A lot of our habits, you know, they they work for us most of the time, but not all the time. But we repeat them regardless of whether they're working for us. And we repeat them even after they've stopped working for us most of the time. It's just easier to do what you've done before than make decisions. And as I said, we're simple creatures. At least the habit system is quite simple. And how about a favorite book? Well, the classics are easy to identify as favorites because. Early on in the field, psychologists were not only 
researchers, they were also philosophers. And so they liked to think broadly about social behavior. So it's really fun to read some of the early thinking. William James, for example, his Principles of Psychology are really fun to read, in part because he draws on personal experience as well as um, the research. And one example is he talks about a friend of his who would come home for dinner and eat and then change into his pajamas. And if he got distracted and ended up in his bedroom before he ate dinner, he'd just change into his pajamas anyway, regardless of who was showing up for dinner, what he was doing. And we all have this experience of continuing to do repeat behaviors that we've done in the past that really we didn't mean to do right now, but it's the nature of habit. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. Oh, I think it has to be everybody's favorite right now is the computer. (laughs) I've been around long enough so that I was writing before we were writing on keyboards. It makes you really appreciate what you got. Is there a key you know, nugget or articulation of your wisdom that uh, you share that people go, oh, wow, that's awesome. They retweet it. They write it down. They Kindle book highlight it. They say, Wendy said this and it's brilliant and we love it. (laughs) Um, No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're so modest. (laughs) No, no. Although let me give you an example that I give to people. And this is not brilliant. It's just practical demonstrating how much we don't understand our own habits. And that is, all of us can use a keyboard. We can all type on a keyboard, some really proficiently. But if I asked you what to list out the keys on the second row of your keyboard, you probably couldn't do that. Can you? I'm I'm trying not to look. A, S, D, F, G, H, J, K, L, uh, yeah. You're cheating. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> You're cheating. Like, JKL all in a row. Is that true? Yeah, it is. <laughs> See, but you could type those things uh-huh. without any hesitation. Yeah. But actually repeating them back to me is hard mm-hmm. because we haven't stored it in our conscious memory. We've stored it in habit memory system. And that shows you the difference, the separation between the two. If folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where would you point them? At Prof Wendy Wood on Twitter or Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn and I'd be very happy to converse with people about habits, habit change, challenges they're experiencing in the workplace with habit. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Be clear about what your goals are and then make sure that your habits support them so that you don't have to fight yourself in order to meet your goals. And so often our biggest challenges are our own habits, what we've done in the past. You don't want to put yourself in that position. You'll be much happier and you'll be much more successful if your habits and goals are aligned. All right. Wendy, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck with your habits and research and more. Thank you so much. Great fun to talk to you. 
I love so much of what Wendy had to say, but what really haunts me and sticks with me is the stale popcorn experiment and thinking about where's there stale popcorn in my life? Stuff I just do habitually without thinking that isn't really serving me and is just kind of lame. And I've, I know I've noticed times where I've sort of like, why am I even watching this show? I don't even like this show anymore. I liked the first two seasons and then it stopped liking it, but now I'm just continuing to watch it just because... I've watched it. I was with a buddy on vacation and we were out camping, outdoorsy, fun stuff, fun stuff away from technology. And then we were kind of rolling back into town, still on vacation, road tripping back, still part of the vacation. He has his phone out and he's just like, whoa, why am I looking at my email? So yeah, stale popcorn. Where is it? Think about it and see if we can replace it with some fresh popcorn. All metaphorically speaking, or maybe literally, if you're eating stale popcorn in the movies. Cut that out and see what's going on at that movie theater. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP742. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.